Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Robert Traeger. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here's a review I received actually on the Chiropractic Science website from Ishi Rodriguez, who says, This podcast has been one of great value to me, my practice, and my patients. Thank you so much for creating it and providing us with such great content. The podcast has given me much confidence through research insights. Keep up the great work. Greetings from Puerto Rico. Well, thank you, Dr. Rodriguez, for listening and sharing your feedback. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Robert Traeger. Robert Traeger is a chiropractic physician and researcher at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States. His research covers a variety of clinically focused topics at the intersection of medicine and chiropractic, ranging from case reports to health service utilization. Dr. Traeger first became interested in research when he was an undergraduate student at Northwestern University, where he took part in a co-op program that got him hands-on experience in a research laboratory. He then attended Logan University, graduating in 2013, and has since practiced in an integrative healthcare setting. And I might add, Dr. Traeger has been uh, prolific in his uh, research these last few years, so I'm super excited to have him on. Dr. Traeger, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you so much, Dean, for having me here. It's really an honor to be here. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, we've got a lot of stuff to cover today. Uh, and as you know, the first question I always ask people is, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Yes. Yeah, so it was when I was a teenager, I had a couple of positive experiences firsthand receiving chiropractic care. Uh, I was an athlete at the time, had a couple of injuries, and I really benefited from receiving chiropractic spinal manipulation. And it just appealed to me. I like the natural hands-on approach, the conservative approach. Uh, nobody in my family is a chiropractor, although my grandfather was a dentist, and I, I like to think that he sort of influenced me into healthcare. And it just sort of stuck in the back of my mind as I was in college, and I never really uh, forgot about that. And so I just had my sights set on it from a younger age. That's great. So did, I'm just curious, did you have any like particular experience uh, that really made you want to become a chiropractor or was it sort of a gradual thing? It was pretty 
sudden, actually. I, I was in a motor vehicle collision, uh, somewhat minor, but I did injure my neck. And I did not go to the chiropractor right away. I actually struggled with some neck pain, uh, difficulty turning my head, sort of like a typical whiplash sort of thing. And eventually, when I did go to the chiropractor, it was basically immediate relief. And that was when things really clicked for me. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it, it, you know, it just seems that many of us have uh, a certain experience or, or we think about a, a cluster of experiences that seem to get us there. I, I know a lot of students don't have any uh, experiences going in and that that's totally fine too, but uh, many of us do. And so I appreciate you sharing that. So you went to chiropractic school, uh, Logan and at that point, I'm just curious, did, did you have any inclination to research or were you just set to be a clinician or what were you thinking through chiropractic school? Well, I actually became interested in research in my undergraduate training and a minor correction from the intro, it's, it was Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. It's a common, common mix up between the two, but that's okay. Uh, Northeastern is known for its co-op program. And it's a program where you're still enrolled as a student, but you spend six months working. And so I did that basically as many times as you could do throughout school. I mean, in, in total, it was almost two years that I was working full time through college, not even going to class. And uh, a few of those jobs were research oriented. So Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, microbiology lab and a biotech firm. And I really enjoyed the research environment. I liked the idea of problem solving and writing and uh, communicating. And I went to my first research conference. And research was always in the back of my mind going through chiropractic school. Although I guess you could say I sort of put it on hold to pursue more of a career as a clinician uh, after graduating. But uh, I loved reading research papers and writing down different ideas of things that I wanted to do at some point. And uh, I actually wrote a case report in chiropractic school that I never published, which is kind of funny, and uh, a review paper that I never published as well, which is really funny looking back. But all these things just kind of uh, were, were really interesting to me. And uh, I never really wanted to make the leap into being a full-time researcher out of chiropractic school. I wanted to start off as a clinician and then maybe pursue the research later on, which is more what I'm doing now. Awesome. Well, let's get into what you are doing now. And you are, I would say, in a, in a, a little bit of a different environment compared to most chiropractors, as I understand it. Uh, you are in a hospital setting. And I know that this is a uh, a setting that a lot of chiropractors want to get into, uh, that have interest in, as well as the VA and, and other uh, programs that really uh, were not available, uh, at least as widespread as they are now when, when I was going through school and going into practice. So I wonder if you could tell us how you got into this role at a hospital setting. How did you make those connections I'm sure other chiropractors would like to know. And then also, what what does your job look like? I mean, what exactly are you doing there? Yes. Yeah, so currently I'm at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a chiropractic physician, as we call it, in the hospital. 
I work with patients four days a week. One of those, uh, two of those days, we're actually on site at the hospital, um, right upstairs from pain management, who sends us a lot of our referrals, uh, chronic pain patients, people that have a lot of comorbidities and uh, things like that. And then the other two days, I'm in an outpatient office that's more in a community setting and a little bit less uh, comorbidities and chronic pain, but that's still our number one referral, especially for me there. And it's very different from private practice. I mean, I worked at a maybe a more typical population the first six and a half, seven years I was out of school in Pittsburgh. And it, it was actually an integrative setting as well. And I would say the population we work with now is a little more uh, comorbid, if you want to call it that, uh, a little more challenges, a lot of pre-surgery sort of patients that might go have surgery for their back or neck or people that have already had one surgery or several surgeries, things like that. People that have been on opioids for decades and then maybe their primary care provider stopped uh, prescribing or something happened. Uh, So that's, that's what I'm doing now. And basically how I got to the hospital is uh, kind of a longer story, but after school, I wanted to start off in an integrative setting. And I looked all around. I mean, I shadowed and interviewed a bunch of different places. And I found somewhere that was building an integrative setting with multi-specialties. We had a physiatrist, a physical therapist, actually more than one, uh, chiropractors. And so I went there and really had some great experiences. I learned a lot working side by side with all these different providers. And I feel like it really, I really grew as a clinician. And at that point, my main focus was not research, but over uh, the first few years, I started to dabble in that. Uh, Probably my first big break was getting an invite to write a book chapter for a textbook called Thoracic Outlet Syndrome. And I wrote a chapter about chiropractic for Thoracic Outlet Syndrome. And then I wrote a couple other book chapters for a friend of mine who's wrote an orthopedics textbook. And I wrote a bunch of my own sort of Uh, chapters in my own books as well, and a couple of case reports. And then I use that to leverage uh, kind of positioning myself as an author, researcher, sort of more of a academic type of person, even though I was still a clinician. But I went around and I started interviewing and sending all of this stuff to potential employers and saying, hey, like, I'd like to do some research. Do you have a position for a chiropractor that can also do a little bit of research? And there were a lot of places that were starting to get interested in this, and University Hospitals was one of them. And so we moved up to Cleveland, and that's that's how I got this job. Wow, that's a really cool story, and, and I like how you incorporated the research into helping you find a position. I mean, it is true to who you are, for sure, uh, but I think that that will help other chiropractors also who who may have similar interests to to get into this integrative setting uh, using research as sort of a leverage tool as well. I, I think that's uh, that's awesome. Now, I've got another question, uh, sort of a, a question that's been in the back of my mind for a while. Um, and this is probably a good time to to go through it because you mentioned about in the hospital setting how uh, there's just, in general, you would say, in, in your own words, that the 
the patients are, they have more comorbid conditions. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, me not having practiced in a hospital setting or uh, probably with patients that have as many comorbid conditions as you say, getting ready for surgery, etc. cetera. Uh, it's been my thought that uh, uh, chiropractic uh, care, if you will, uh, could could have equal effect in the outpatient setting or, or possibly even a, a greater effect. Um, I, I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are comparing your first, uh, you know, seven years in practice to to the hospital setting. Do you notice differences in the way that patients respond in, in each of those settings or, or is it about the same? I think your suspicions match mine. I mean, when we have patients with a lot of health challenges, sometimes we're happy if we see a reduction in pain from a severe level to maybe a moderate level uh, rather than, let's say, trying to get it complete, completely rid of their symptoms altogether. Uh, so I'd say the goals are different and a lot of it is more co-management. I mean, a lot of patients I'm managing with pain management and physical therapy and maybe a psychologist or, you know, all these different providers come together, a primary care as well, uh, maybe a surgeon. I mean, so we all kind of touch base with one another. We even have meetings to try to manage some of these challenging patients uh, and, and help them get better. It's not maybe as straightforward as a private practice where you, you can treat somebody and, and see almost like instant results. So I, I think in that aspect, it, it does differ, although we can still be successful and it's just what you consider success to be, if that makes sense. And if I'm seeing somebody that's had six back surgeries and their pain has kind of not been touched by anything and I'm able to get it down just a little bit, to me, that is uh, still a success. Absolutely. And, you know, my, my question is really fueled by the literature uh, we have very little data that I've seen that has looked at the complexity of comorbidities. Uh, I'm thinking of Dr. Whedon's research uh, where he's looked at uh, Medicare patients and try to factor in comorbidities. Uh, but as far as I know, that's uh, some of the only research that we have. I may be mistaken, but um, so I, I'm just excited that you're in that kind of environment, and I'm, I'm hoping to see more data uh, over the years to come about, you know, what we might see in the outpatient world versus what we're uh, seeing as a profession in the, uh, the inpatient world uh, in the hospital setting. So, cool. Well, you uh, told us about what your uh, practice is sort of like, I mean, what kind of patients you might be seeing. Um, but I wonder if you could drill down on just a little bit more and uh, tell us, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, what is life like uh, working with the hospital system? Are you, you said you were in practice uh, on the uh, hospital floor two days a week. So the other days, are you researching? Are you doing some teaching? Uh, maybe you could just uh, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to clarify first. So in the hospital setting, uh, we are connected to the hospital, but I'm technically not treating the inpatients. Okay. Uh, although there is 
sometimes people will be inpatients that we'll see thereafter. But I mean, it's not an inpatient technically uh, setting. But okay. yeah, two days a week I'm, I'm there. Two days a week I'm in a community setting. One day a week I do research strictly. Uh, that started this year and I was granted that after publishing a bunch of things and my department wanted to facilitate my interest and make it easier for me to, to produce things without kind of uh, having to block different hours and things out of my day, treating patients to have meetings and things like that. Uh, I, as far as teaching goes, I'm not really teaching at the medical school. I mean, occasionally I'll do like presentations to the hospital or different pain management groups, things like that. Uh, I actually am an adjunct, I believe is what it's called at Logan. And I'll take preceptor interns uh, from there. And we just had one do a few months with us at the hospital, which was really fun. And I let's see, I am hoping to become faculty at Case Western, but that that's sort of like a long term goal. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Cool. Now you've been really productive, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, uh, with your research uh, output over the last few years. So I wonder if you could give us an idea, just broad strokes, about what are the topics that are of most interest to you? Well, I'd like to say everything I'm interested in has a clinical tie-in or clinical focus, and that can range from case reports, which I'm super interested in, publishing cases from the hospital setting as well as outpatient settings, collaborating with other doctors on that, all the way through what we call health service research, where we're looking at these long-term health outcomes or use of different services, such as emergency departments or surgeries, medications. Uh, and then the conditions that I like to study are low back pain and radiculopathy, sciatic pain, as well as I'm also interested in thoracic outlet syndrome, neck pain. Uh, so it's it's pretty broad, and I haven't really said, okay, I have one specific niche yet. I, I like the complicated sort of clinical stuff a lot, uh, even treating patients after spine surgery. I've done some work on that. So I'm a little bit all over the place at this point, and, and maybe it will narrow down, maybe it won't. Uh, we'll just see. Yeah, totally. Well... I I often thought I had a focus in motor control and things, and then people ask me to be a part of this study or that study. It's really <laughs> not in my wheelhouse per se, but uh, those are fun too. And so, I, I yeah, I like it. Uh, and it sounds like you just like a, a variety of things. So I would encourage you to keep doing that, just expand. and Because uh, we learn from all of these things, from every case study, from from every cohort study and experimental study. Uh, so awesome. Yeah. Keep up doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome work. And speaking about your work, I'd like to dive into a few of your studies. Uh, and I think these will be good uh, representations of, of uh, what you've done so far. And I'm interested to hear your, your own thoughts about these papers. I mean, these papers are, are ones that I'll post on the website so uh, chiropractors and others uh, can check them out and read through them themselves. But uh, I really like having these conversations with the authors of the research because we get to hear 
you know, what, what you're thinking as, uh, as you are going through and trying to figure out how to, how to make this research happen. So the first paper is called Association Between Chiropractic Spinal Manipulation and Lumbar Discectomy in Adults with Lumbar Disc Herniation and Radiculopathy, Retrospective Cohort studying, uh, Study Using uh, United States Data. And this was published in uh, the British Medical Journal open version, and uh, I think it's a it's a really neat paper. And you know, speaking about just seeing things in clinic, I mean, who hasn't seen patients who have either had a discectomy or go on to have a discectomy? Uh, so this is real battle conditions, as you might say, or real world stuff. So, Dr. Traeger, first I would say, how, how did you come up with the idea for this study? And then if you could go ahead and walk us through the paper. Thank you. The idea for the study probably started way back in 2018. I was reading one of the chiropractic research uh, groups on Facebook, and someone posted a study about acupuncture and low back surgery. And there was sort of a discussion about the methodology and people are pointing out different flaws or things. And I just got interested in maybe, okay, this, this might be something we should do in chiropractic and maybe we could improve on it even. And that was at a point where I was in private practice still. I had no way to do a study like this, but I mean, I had a whole list of studies that I wanted to do. And so I just wrote it down on that. And lo and behold, when I got to the hospital, we have access to this big data set. It's called TriNetX. And what that is, is it's a medical records data set where the records are aggregated and de-identified from dozens of healthcare organizations across the United States. And they do have some international stuff too, but we stuck with the uh, U.S. data set. And so I went through some training with the data set and investigator training, all this other stuff, and learned sort of how to design a study for this. And we actually did a few other studies first, and that was on purpose, but it was like I wanted to get practice with using the data set and designing these studies before I stepped it up to the discectomy study. Because to me, that's a very important topic. And this idea of potentially sparing people from having surgery really stuck out in my mind is something that's important to clinicians and stakeholders and patients and insurance companies and pretty much everybody. And so I learned how to use this data set uh, and you can search it through different codes, uh, nomenclature, things like that. And you can create cohorts. You can do retrospective cohort studies and you can compare two different cohorts to one another with respect to an outcome. And, and that's just what we did in this study with looking at discectomy. Got it. Yeah. So um, I, I wonder if you could uh, just go through some of the some of the methods and then uh, the results for this particular study, and then I'll probably have some other questions too for you. Yeah. So with the methods, and I and I borrowed a lot of this from some other studies that were similar. I mean, Dr. Whedon, as you mentioned. And then the other one is Julie Fritz, who is a physical therapist, PhD, who's done a lot of observational studies on health service utilization. And so between that and some other more recent methodology guidelines like strobe and things like that, 
we developed this methodology and the whole idea of it is to make two cohorts that are as similar as possible. And so we limited the study to younger people, I think below 50, 18 to 49. And we excluded a bunch of conditions that might skew the population towards being healthier or unhealthier in either cohort. So we excluded a lot of serious pathology like cancer and also a lot of lower back pathologies or conditions like scoliosis and spondylolisthesis. And then we included conditions like disc herniation and radiculopathy. And the other thing is we had this new user design. And so we started the inclusion of patients in the study at the first day that they were diagnosed with a disc herniation or radiculopathy in the lower back. And the chiropractic cohort had to administer spinal manipulation on the first day that the patient was diagnosed with that. And then the other cohort, uh, they could not have spinal manipulation on the first day that they were diagnosed. And then we used a technique called propensity score matching. And this is, I think, really one of the keys to the study. Uh, propensity score matching is a statistical technique that you use to make the two cohorts more comparable in an observational study. And there are certain caveats to it. And some people will match on a general comorbidity score. And people may have heard of the Charlson comorbidity score. And a lot of studies like ours use that in the past. However, it didn't seem to really make sense for this particular study because the Charlson comorbidity score, for example, will use things like dementia and heart attacks to, to come up with the score. And those things aren't really related to discectomy to my understanding of the literature. And especially in a younger cohort with the new user design of people that were basically in their 30s. Uh, those things are not common. So what we did based on more recent guidance in conducting studies like this is we searched the literature for variables that were associated with the outcome of discectomy. And we found things like body mass index and opioid use. And uh, I think there were 15 different variables that we matched on. And so we matched on those variables and then the cohorts became very similar with respect to those variables. And it's done automatically by the software, but you have to choose the variables uh, strategy that you want it to match for. So, for example, like if you have a 40-year-old obese man that's taking an opioid in the chiropractic cohort, it will find someone just like that in the non-chiropractic cohort, except it does that for 15 different variables. And then once we have the matched uh, cohorts that are similar then we calculated the odds of discectomy over a year and two years follow-up. And we found that the patients that were receiving chiropractic spinal manipulation on the first day uh, that they were diagnosed with disc herniation and radiculopathy were less likely to have a discectomy over two years follow-up. And that was statistically significant, uh, a finding. And yeah, that, that, those were the main findings. So uh, you mentioned uh, manipulation on the first day. Now, was anything uh, looked at beyond the first day? So we did not really require patients to have more than one session of spinal manipulation. They only had to have that one session. 
uh, or not on the first day. That's the only difference between the cohorts. Uh, and we could have required patients to have like multiple sessions of spinal manipulation or sessions spread out over a month or two, but we decided not to because we felt that might've created more of a bias towards uh, favoring the chiropractic cohort in the sense where people are getting a lot of follow-up and care and attention. So it was more of a care pathway, uh, if you will, rather than looking at like how many treatments you need, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Uh, and, and that would seem to be in line with uh, many other studies now that have been published in the last few years, looking at who you go to see first as uh, maybe one way to phrase it, uh, whether you see a, a chiropractor first or uh, as you said, you know, which pathway uh, you might be going down in terms of your care. So yeah, that makes total sense. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about reading through uh, the paper was you you described the propensity scores, I think, very well. Um, you also did something called E-value sensitivity. Uh, could you tell us uh, what, what that is and how that adds to the uh, statistical analysis? Yeah, so the E-value sensitivity analysis is a metric that was created by an epidemiologist at Harvard. And it has received some criticism, but it is a nice way to look at unmeasured confounders. And unmeasured confounders are variables that could influence your outcome that you did not look at directly in your study. So the one example that we give in the paper is income. And there was some evidence that patients that see a chiropractor have higher income as well as people that have higher income are more likely to have disc surgery, discectomy. And so when you're looking at the E-value analysis, you have to have a variable that's associated with both the exposure and the outcome. And so income was one potential one that we looked at. Although, as we mentioned in the paper, there's really not a lot of great evidence on why people see a chiropractor, especially updated recent evidence. And in the population we looked at specifically in this sort of academic, large hospital settings that we find in Trinet X, uh, there's probably not really anything that we know about. But nonetheless, we, we did this analysis and all you do is you just go to this website, you plug in the risk ratio, it converts it into a, an E-value. If the E-value for the unmeasured confounder exceeds the E-value for your study, then it could potentially explain away your findings. And we did not find any variables in the literature that were strong enough to explain away our findings. And uh, the other one that we didn't look at, uh, I don't think we gave an example for in the paper, but Sharma in 2003 published a paper on variables that are associated with receiving chiropractic care. And one of those is patient preference to avoid prescription medications. And that was one that I believe did not account for our findings as well, all because it's just a weak association. But the other thing that's interesting with our paper is that a lot of the chiropractic cohort was actually taking a medication at baseline. I mean, I believe it was something like a third of the patients were on an opioid and over half of them were on some sort of central nervous system medication, like uh, including opioids or analgesics. And that was actually higher in the chiropractic cohort than the other cohort. 
And so this idea about chiropractic patients trying to avoid medications doesn't really make sense in that, in that sense, because so many of them were already taking a medication. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, I, I also wanted to uh, just swing back to the, to the odds of having a discectomy and you had uh, looked at a one year and a two year uh, odds ratio. So uh, the, the odds were significantly reduced for both one year and two year follow-ups. It looks like, and for the one year, uh, the odds ratio was 0.69. And for the two year is 0.77. So in both scenarios, uh, for both one and two year follow up, it looked like the uh, chiropractic spinal manipulation group had a reduced uh, odds of receiving a discectomy. Um, have you have you looked at um, further follow ups from that point? A three year follow up? To, I don't even know if you would have the data for that. Uh, I'm just curious if that trend would continue to rise a little bit. Uh, in other sure. words, yeah, yeah, I'd- that's a great question. And unfortunately, we don't have the sample size right now to look at three years or even longer. Unfortunately, with this sort of study. The longer follow-up you have, the lower sample you have, basically, because people will drop out or be lost to follow-up. And we actually required people to have a follow-up visit during the follow-up period. And then also, you have to cut off the inclusion window like another year back. So we might have to wait, but it would be nice to repeat this study at some point in the future if the sample size grows. Uh, and it's it's possible that the difference between the cohorts with respect to how many patients get a discectomy becomes more similar over increasing time. I I don't know, although I would think not because the majority of patients had the surgery in the first year, and we only saw a small increase from year one to year two. So I think there would probably be an even less of an increase from year two to year three, if that makes sense. Uh, because the majority of people will get the surgery from from what I can tell from the literature, usually in the first year after their symptoms. Yeah, I I, I would also think that as well. Yeah, I think there is a sort of uh, uh, diminishment, uh, if we could use that term, over time that the the biggest uh, the biggest change we would probably see is within that year. You're right. As people are having the significant symptoms, uh, I would imagine they'd be more likely to uh, go through uh, the possibility of discectomy. Um, hmm. Any any plans to follow up this with a, with a randomized controlled trial? I know this was something that uh, was mentioned in the discussion section as uh, perhaps an, a next step, or is that something that you're hoping perhaps another group might be able to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that's something that is needed. Although with a study like this, it's not easy to do because we had thousands of patients and we needed years of follow-up data. So I think that would be quite costly and challenging. I actually think that maybe a better step for now would be to try to replicate the study in a different database, maybe an administrative claims database or a different medical records database using similar methods or slightly different methods. And I would actually like to repeat the study myself, maybe with a longer follow-up period 
or controlling for different variables better that we did not have the capability to do now because of sample size. Like another example is the lack of uh, socioeconomic variables that, that we did not really have access to. And the good news, though, is that starting in 2017, the ICD-10 codes introduced a lot of social determinants, and we can start to use those now. Uh, but it's contingent on the sample size growing. So I think replication and then uh, longer follow-up and then an RCT would be a really nice way to go about it. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with all those points. And as someone who I've normally done RCTs or quasi-experimental type of studies in, in my career, and it is, I mean, it, they're difficult and they have their, their own limitations for sure. And you just it's so difficult to have a a really large number without a ton of funding. Uh, and then the trials just take so darn long uh, at that point as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right. I think uh, having uh, another um, cohort through maybe a different database, uh, as you suggest, or, or something of that nature. But, uh, you know, I, I think that will provide, I think this, your study first provides uh, very good evidence. And I, I think that, uh, any follow-ups would, uh, just provide that, that much more evidence for us. So, and then follow up with an RCT where possible is, uh, is, a, is a great, um, great idea too. So let's, go on to another thing that you're really interested in uh, and, and and I think all chiropractors should be interested in these are case reports I mean on uh, on a the basis that chiropractors work in practice it's a it's a one-on-one -on -one thing normally and so case reports uh, are I think fantastic ways to get information out about the uh, what well, about a lot of things? And we'll, I'm sure you're going to hit on these topics of what potentially these case reports are good for. Um, but you did a really interesting study where you did a review of case reports and a bibliometric analysis of them. It was published in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies 2021. And certainly anybody who has, uh, you know, seen your name in the literature, you're you're a part of as a as an author on numerous case studies yourself uh lots and uh, we were joking before we got on and i you said uh, that you know mondays typically were your research days and i said geez uh, i think you're kicking out at least one study every monday <laughs> uh that's what it seems to be you're you're really prolific and so i appreciate that um so I wonder if you could uh, take us, uh, set the stage, if you will, for this article. Uh, why the interesting case studies? Why do you think it's so important for uh, the profession? And then what specifically this, this paper adds to the literature? Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Dean. Uh, so I've been interested in case, case reports for a long time. I think that it represents a lot of clinical detail and it translates well into higher research designs. It's a nice entry point for clinicians to get involved in research, learn the writing process, publication process, using references, uh, critical thinking. And 
it's kind of a bridge as I see it between the clinic and the literature. And I wanted to do some sort of review paper on case reports. And that's where this idea of the study came in. And what we did is we looked at all the case reports in chiropractic that were on PubMed. And we wanted to see if there were trends, if there were gaps. And first of all, in our test searches, we found that there were barely any case reports in chiropractic compared to other similar disciplines like other medical specialties. I mean, it was just a fraction of what was out there for other professions. And so that told me, wow, we're kind of lagging behind. I mean, and I think that having case reports is is super valuable because when you look at the evidence pyramid or evidence hierarchy, I mean, case reports are in there and the other studies are sort of built on top. And whenever you are writing a research proposal or maybe something for uh, institutional review board, case reports come up. I mean, even in the introduction or background to a lot of bigger study designs, I mean, people reference case reports to sort of justify what they're doing. Like if you see an observation in the clinic, that's important. And maybe that would translate into a bigger study and sort of help you form a hypothesis. And in our study that we published on case reports, we found that there were barely any case reports in chiropractic that were uh, focusing on some of these special populations like uh, pregnant women and pediatrics and even some smaller sort of groups like neurodegenerative diseases and things like that, that we barely have any uh, case reports or any research on at all. And I think it's, it's interesting to me because we can have high-level evidence saying that chiropractic spinal manipulation is effective for low back pain, but a lot of these studies are randomized controlled trials that exclude certain populations like people with cancer and pregnancy and things like that. So the research doesn't necessarily apply to those people, and so it sort of has to be built from the ground up. And a good way to do that is to start off with a case report and then go to a different observational study, like a cohort study, and then a trial, and sort of build up from from the ground up. And so not only with writing case reports, but I've found these trends, and I think that we're starting to fill some of these gaps, and it may take some more time to do that, but part of what I like to do is get other clinicians interested in writing case reports and try to collaborate with the other, other providers and if they have an interesting case, I will help them write it up. And so maybe half of the case reports I've published have been my patients. And then the other half or so has been other clinicians' patients that we collaborate together. And I think that's just a, a really fun experience. And it, there's a lot of benefit from that, too. Absolutely. And so at at this point, I wonder if you could... Guide us through, um, now that you've kind of gone through, you know, where, where you're coming from on these case reports and, and the importance of them. And I agree wholeheartedly, uh, about your assessment with the evidence pyramid. I mean, we have a pyramid for a reason and at the, the base are case studies, observations from clinicians and that, 
necessarily has to be the case if this is a clinical profession. I mean, you have to have the the base point being the patient and uh, and the experiences with the with the doctor. So, um, from from that perspective, then you do this uh, review paper. What were the what were the key findings uh, that you noticed from the paper, and perhaps what um, conclusions or recommendations might you give uh, the profession? Well, the paper showed a lot of different trends with case reports, and one of the interesting ones was up until around 1980 or so, there were actually more case reports describing adverse events related to chiropractic care than there were what we call case management case reports. And and that was just one interesting finding. And now the case management case reports by far outnumber the adverse event case reports. And the other interesting trend sort of within that was that the number of a vascular adverse event case reports has been trending down. It's actually the lowest, uh, it's the strongest negative trend that we found. And so that's being replaced by a near parallel opposite trend of management or diagnosis of vascular pathology, like uh, case reports where a chiropractor recognizes a patient having a stroke, for example, and those things are starting to really come out. Uh, And then we found a bunch of research gaps. We found certain conditions. We broke everything down by ICD-10 categories and the vast majority of case reports fall into this ICD-10M category, like musculoskeletal conditions. And pretty much everything else was very, very low. And the one I keep mentioning was pregnancy uh, because there's so few and that there was only a handful of cases on that. And then we looked at citation metrics and we wanted to find out which case reports were cited the most and pregnancy came up again. I mean, it's very interesting that that seems to be everywhere. Uh, and then the other thing we looked at was different markers of sort of what we call the care guidelines and how clinicians may or may not be following these, writing up their case reports. And it seemed like if they were following the guidelines with some of the markers that we looked at with saying case in the title, things like that, they were more likely to be cited. Uh, but basically, I think none of the citation stuff doesn't really matter so much to clinicians. Uh, That's more of an academic thing out of interest that we did. But I think clinicians should think about writing case reports. And if they have something that is first and foremost unique, then they should consider that. But also it doesn't have to be that unique because there's only very few cases on things like dizziness, vertigo, vascular diagnosis and pregnancy and pediatrics. So, I mean, it may not have to be as unique as you may think. Uh, So I think chiropractors should become interested in writing case reports, read this paper, read the CARE guidelines, C-A-R-E. They were published in 2013 and they describe how to write a case report and there's a checklist to follow. Um, Like email me, I mean, reach out to your chiropractic school or, or somebody that's published a case report and try to get some guidance on this because it's it's not super, super hard to do. And I think there's a huge benefit from it. And and yeah, so those were the, the main findings. So the, any, any other questions about it? Well, um, maybe just a, a comment um, and a little further discussion perhaps. Uh, uh, so one of the things I was really happy to see 
in your methods section was that you you not only looked through PubMed, uh, but also indexed to chiropractic literature, Google Scholar. I think sometimes our own databases don't get searched uh, to the extent that they should. Um, I mean, look, up until, oh, the last decade or so, uh, we've really only had one journal in PubMed, and that was JMPT. And, you know, in the last decade, we've had several others become indexed. But, um, you know, you pretty much have to, to look in some of these uh, other databases. Um, I know that as a, a researcher myself, I tend to get, I would say, maybe pigeonholed into PubMed as, uh, you know, the only database. But certainly there are other databases. I, so I just wanted to point that out, that I really appreciate that uh, that you included that. And I think it was... Uh, a necessary component, but I've seen so many things where indexed to chiropractic literature and other things are not even looked at, which obviously dramatically reduces the sample size uh, yeah. for for some of these studies. Um, another thing I wanted to comment on was what you said about the initial studies seem to be about adverse events. I wonder, I'm just going to hypothesize here. But I wonder if that's because, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, in the 90s was when I went through school. And I can remember that the stroke issue was such a huge, huge topic. Um, it, it seemed to occupy a lot of discussions in, in classes when, when research came up and there was lots of discussion about that. And uh, so I wonder if that's just where some of that came in, uh, where, you know, just hyper vigilant, perhaps uh, hyper aware of those things. And that's what occupied people's minds. And now that we've got much better data to suggest that it's not as much of an issue as we were perhaps making it out to be in terms of a, any potential causal mechanisms, uh, right. then maybe now we can focus on other, other topics. Uh, but uh, totally agree also that uh, we need to do a, a much better job about adding these case reports to literature and, and also um, back up the idea that these are not that um, uh, challenging perhaps as some other types of uh, reports, but they do form the base of the pyramid. And so we need as many of these things as we can get. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So the next, um, the next uh, study that I want to talk about is actually uh, quite interesting. Um, and I know you've, you've heard the uh, discussion uh, that Dr. Anderson and I had a couple of weeks back now on um a study that involved uh, looking at uh, spinal manipulation, and it included information about emergency department visits. And the chiropractor in that particular study, and I'll have the reference to this in, in the show notes, uh, had suggested that uh, uh, with the data that the chiropractors had a greater amount of emergency department visits than other practitioners. And you and I had a, a bit of a discussion about this too, when we were talking about doing the podcast 
Uh, and, and I know you've got great insight into what's happening, uh, you know, with the, the hospital type systems, how patients are coming in to, uh, receive their care. And this is a really, we'll say complex issue. And I think you have some fantastic points. Uh, so you, you, um, published a, uh, uh, a conference presentation, an abstract, and it was called Association Between Chiropractic Spinal Manipulation and Emergency Visits in Adults with Non-Urgent Low Back Pain Retrospective Cohort Study. So I wonder if you could um, tell us what, what your study was about and then maybe comment on that Harwood paper that found that uh, chiropractors had the most emergency department visits when they also had the lowest number of hospitalizations and lowest cost for care. It didn't make sense to Dr. Anderson and I, but, uh, you know, we're not in the context you are either. So I'd appreciate any, any discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, so my interest in emergency department visits goes all the way back to when I first started at the hospital. That was actually the first research study I attempted to do. And the hospital was running this competition. It was called Defects in Care. And they wanted people that worked at the hospital to come up with research ideas on how to improve the quality of the value of care at the hospital. And so my idea was to study emergency department visits. And we were looking at a prospective study of hundreds of patients and it simply was not feasible to do once we got into the IRB and the recommendations that they had, we weren't able to do those. And so we basically stopped that uh, study. But along the way, I was really, really grateful to be able to shadow in the emergency department and work with a lot of these emergency providers on this project and getting this going. And I learned a lot from them about how it all goes and Along the way, I did learn some of the myths about emergency department use, and I think that's important in the context of some of these observational studies in that I guess one of the myths is that emergency department visits are extremely expensive, and the truth is that it depends on how complex the emergency visit is, and there's different levels of emergency department visit complexity. It's like when we in the United States are billing a new patient exam, there's different levels of exam. It's the same thing with emergency department visits. They have different levels of complexity and that cost can vary hundreds of dollars. And so that's one of the things I think is important to keep in mind. The other thing is that um, a lot of the patients that are in the emergency department truly need to be there. There's this idea about non-urgent low back pain and low complexity visits and things like that. And I guess there's a perception that those patients are making up the bulk of the emergency department. And I don't think that's true. And the research is showing it's, it's a smaller percentage maybe than we thought in the past that is non-urgent. And emergency departments actually have a better way of handling these non-urgent visits now as well. And they have things called fast track units where they will triage patients with an advanced uh, practice nurse, for example. And the patient is not in the emergency department very long. They're kind of off to the side and they triage them through, maybe give them uh, some advice or medications or a referral or something and then send them home. And they don't need a lot of 
investigations or anything really. So all those things are important to keep in mind. And so I mentioned the prospective study that we sort of abandoned at the hospital with chiropractic. And along the way, I started getting this idea, it's going to be really tough to do this study. And so we started this observational retrospective cohort study using this Trinet X database, the same one that we use for discectomy uh, study in BMJ. And the study, I would describe it as relatively basic, knowing what I know now, knowing what the research is showing. But like you said, we did find that the patients that started with a chiropractor for low back pain were less likely to go to the emergency department. And we actually submitted this to get published somewhere. And the reviewers had a lot of really, really good feedback. And they pointed out some residual confounding that we could not account for at the time, such as how do you know why people are going to the emergency department? And that question really stuck out to me. And I was like, really, I, I don't know. So we had to withdraw that because I just didn't want to proceed because I felt like we couldn't answer some of these big, big questions. And I think this is a problem that faces a lot of these studies that are looking at provider type and emergency visits where they are excluding serious pathology. They're excluding usually caudiquina syndrome, fracture, infection, things like that. But then why someone goes to the emergency department could be tens of thousands of reasons. I mean, when you look at all the different ICD diagnosis codes. And so I think we need to get a better grasp on how to distinguish between what we call urgent low back pain, meaning it requires immediate medical attention, and non-urgent low back pain in the emergency department setting. And even though I use that catchphrase in my title of the conference presentation, I wasn't really super confident that that's actually what our study was showing. And so I think there's actually a way to do this. And, and we're planning a follow-up uh, study on this now. And the idea is to break the emergency department outcome into sort of subcategories by the level of complexity, which actually is based on billing codes. And that's another way to exclude people with these highly complex um, visits. Because the thing is, if we see that patients are using the emergency department more, we don't know if that's a bad thing. We don't know if that's overutilizing or, or whatever, because patients, uh, chiropractors or primary care or anybody can refer a patient to the emergency department. And in an ethical way, if, if the patient is having something that's concerning, like maybe a patient with low back pain is urinating every 30 minutes, and maybe you think they have caught equinus syndrome, right? So you send them to the emergency department, and that would be a high-complexity visit probably because they'd have to do some imaging, et cetera. But that patient, in my mind, might not be excluded from the enrollment because they technically don't have cauda equina syndrome when you are seeing them in the outpatient setting. So that's an example of how things might go awry in that sort of observational study with all these different confounding variables. Um, and so to kind of explain the Harwood where to start paper, which found that the chiropractic patients were, uh, had a higher risk of going to the emergency department, I actually looked through that and I did not find anywhere what codes they used to identify emergency visits. And I think they may have fallen into the same sort of pattern of looking at all emergency department visits instead of just the low complexity ones. And I think that's really what we need to be focusing on uh, because 
if we're seeing a patient who has something serious, maybe a fracture, and, and patients do come to us with serious conditions as chiropractors, you know, we, we need to send that person to the emergency department. So it's not really like a bad thing that that's happening. And so we need to distinguish or differentiate between the low complexity and the high complexity visits. But then also, I, I tend to think that in the Harwood study, which found the higher use of ED among chiropractic patients, that like you said, there's less hospitalization and lower cost despite higher emergency visits. And so that technically, it could be, compl- uh, could be explained by uh, a higher amount of low complexity visits, if that makes sense, because those are the low cost uh, visits. And so there's a lot of just confounding variables and in place. And, and the other thing that's really interesting that I just found in the literature is that uh, another variable that we really need to control for is whether or not patients had a primary care or outpatient visit before they went to the emergency visit. And that's kind of regardless of if they're seeing a chiropractor or not. I think that's another thing we need to keep in mind. And just generally to kind of recap this uh, for re- review uh, people that are listening is that when you have a very specific outcome like discectomy or lumbar MRI, you know, those, those outcomes only really happen for one type of thing. But an emergency department could happen for anything. So it's really that much harder to sort of control for all these extra variables that are taking place, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I'm glad you brought up the part about chiropractors referring to the ER. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, we want to rule out... Uh, certain things that are not within, um, you know, our typical daily practice. Uh, and so, uh, absolutely. So I'm glad you, you talked about that, talked about the variety of variables uh, that go into such a study that it is complicated. Um, but I'm glad you're thinking about it. <laughs> and I think we need to think about these things more as we progress so that we can further guide you know, how we conduct these types of studies and how we glean information about, you know, who's going where and what kind of services they're, they're undergoing it. It's, it's a whole lot more complicated than I initially thought uh, several months ago, uh, reading through the paper. So I really do appreciate uh, your uh, expertise, just your your background and the environment that you're in, and and having all these um, uh, valid points to bring up about these types of studies. So, uh, thank you so much for for going through that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, th- the the last thing I'd I'd like to ask you, and and of course I ask this of every guest uh, who comes on, is about uh, students, uh, chiropractors, or other research uh, students who might be interested in pursuing careers in chiropractic science or just going on to, let's say, a master's or, or a PhD, could you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who want to, to, uh, to further their education or start becoming involved in, in research? What advice would you give them? I think the first bit of advice is that you don't necessarily have to choose between one or the other career path. And if you want to, you can dabble in both like I'm doing. And it might be tough to sort of find a job that allows you to do this. But even if you're in private practice, you can still chip away at case reports or review papers, things like that. 
you don't necessarily need an institutional review board to do lower level studies that are not human research uh, subject designs. I mean, although if you want to do like a bigger, broader study, you will. Uh, but I think you can get started. And I, I think in, even in private practice, even as a student, you can get started with a lot of these things. And some of the tools uh, are free. So like one thing I really liked along the way is something called Coursera. Uh, and they have free biostatistics courses. They even have a course on how to do a systematic review. And those are things that I'm very grateful to have done. And you can pay if you want to get credits for those, or you can just take a free version. Uh, there's things like Peer Review Academy. It used to be called Publons, but I believe it was migrated to a different uh, server. And there's things like uh, Google Scholar and ResearchGate and all these different tools. And I think it's good to get familiar with all the different research tools that are out there that are free and start to learn how to use them and start to learn sort of the methodology. Uh, I think it's a good idea to also reach out to researchers that you feel like their work resonates with you and maybe volunteer to help or anything sort of to do with them or just have a conversation. Uh, fortunately, there are a lot more uh, job opportunities for people that are interested in research. I mean, there's fellowships and different research uh, roles that are specific to that uh, for chiropractors now. So there's probably a lot out there, although uh, for me, I was a little tentative to go 100% into the research world. I mean, as a chiropractor, I feel like my source of income is sort of dependent on me behaving as a chiropractor. And so I didn't want to give up my clinical hours. And I also really am attached to the clinical role as well. And so for me, for the time being, I'm, I'm just trying to dabble in both, if that makes sense. And I think I just want to show others that that's a possibility. Well, I think those are excellent, excellent uh, points that you make. Many of those points, I've not heard uh, other guests that I've had on the podcast talk about, like the Coursera and the Publons uh, for becoming a reviewer, but all of these are really important if you want to immerse yourself in this sort of research trajectory. So excellent advice. Well, Dr. Traeger, this has been a real treat for me to learn further about your research, what you've been up to. Uh, you're doing great things uh, in the profession. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Smith. It's been an honor to be here. I really appreciate this. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Dr. Robert Traeger. We were just talking in the background after the podcast finished, and I'm so excited about all the work that he's doing. And one bottom line takeaway that I had was just for chiropractors who in practice who have interest in, in research, just do something, whether it's case studies or uh, do reviews, case series, something like that uh, will advance the profession uh, beyond where we're at now. That would be terrific. All right. Well, we've got more great interviews coming up soon. Take care for now.